0: Well, it's great to be with all of you this morning. My name is Joe, and I, along with Pastor RJ and Pastor Tony, I have the privilege to serve in this place as one of the pastors here at Faith. Everything that we do at Faith is about bringing Jesus into our relationships. And this past Wednesday night, a whole bunch of you got to bring the love of Jesus to a whole bunch of people. In fact, so many of you showed up at our night of service that we packaged our 10,000 meals in absolutely record time. But more exciting than that, what I get to share with you this morning is that all 10,000 of these meals are on their way to Poland right now. So how amazing is that? All those meals are going to be able to go to people in the Ukraine, people in Poland right now who certainly, as you know, are suffering tremendously. And this is just a small reminder from our church Uh, to each one of them, that their Heavenly Father is paying attention. He does love them and he does care for them. So thank you so much for helping to be the hands and the feet of Jesus um, by doing this this past week. And then coming up this summer, two things that uh, I'm also hoping you will choose to participate in because we're going to need a lot of assistance this year. Um, First, our Vacation Bible School. Last year we had a record number of kids at our Vacation Bible School and I fully expect that we will have the same or more this year. And we need a lot of adults, we need a lot of college students, and we need a lot of high school students to make Vacation Bible School happen. This happens in the end of July. And so I'm hoping that you would be willing to take a little bit of time out of your schedule and set that aside because that really does, in a huge way, it brings Jesus into a whole bunch of relationships during this one week here at faith. The other thing that's happening in July is our UP mission trip. This is in partnership with two um, churches that we work with up in the UP, 906 Community Church, Victory Lutheran Church. We have been supporting and working with both of these ministries for many years through gifts for all God's children, through other activities up in the UP. We need a bunch of adults who would be willing and again kids and families who would be willing to go because this week we actually make their big outreach happen and we want to help to be the hands and feet of Jesus serving them as they share the good news of Jesus in their community. So both of these events you can find out more if you would like to go to our church center app again you heard about that, scan that QR. Code in your seat, and that will take you right to the app. Look for these two pictures under the events tab, and you can get all the information that you need right there. Today, we are wrapping up our series on how we got the Bible. And the reason I wanted to talk about this for a couple of weeks is because, while most of us know some Bible stories, Um, the, the truth is, very few of us actually know the story of the Bible, and knowing how we got the Bible is almost as important as knowing what's in the Bible. In fact, one of the reasons it's easy to dismiss um, this book, to dismiss what this book says, um, to dismiss what Jesus says or what church is all about or what faith is all about, um, and and again, this might be your story, uh, is that when you were growing up, plenty of people told you Bible stories, but perhaps nobody took the time to actually tell you the story about the Bible. And it's the backstory of the Bible that actually sheds enormous, enormous light on the events that are found in the Bible. Now, part of the problem with all this is the fact that the way that you got your Bible is not the way the world got its Bible, right? The way that you, you, when you got your Bible, it came with chapters and verses and headings and footnotes, and it was cross-referenced, and there was a concordance, and there was a bunch of cool maps all stuck in the back of your Bible, right? The other problem is that most people don't realize that the story of the Bible doesn't actually begin in the beginning, Right? The story of the Bible does not begin in Genesis. The story of the Bible begins with Jesus. Even though Jesus did not write the Bible, the reason that we have a Bible is because of Jesus. Because the story of the Bible begins when Jesus was discovered alive after he was crucified. If Jesus had been crucified, it's important you know this, if he had been crucified... And if he was not discovered alive, then you need to know this would not exist because there would be no story to tell. There would be no reason to talk about anything because hundreds, thousands of people were crucified long before Jesus. And many, many, many of those people, in fact, claimed to be the Jewish messiah. But the reason why people decided to document the life of Jesus, the reason why they they put all this information together was not because of what he taught. It wasn't because he was arrested. It was not because he was crucified. People documented the life of Jesus because the story of Jesus did not end on a Roman cross. And on Easter Sunday, when Jesus' disciples, right, not the 12 apostles... When Jesus' disciples, meaning the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people who followed Jesus from the time he was baptized in the Jordan River all the way until Jesus was crucified and resurrected. On Easter Sunday, when Jesus' disciples who had hid in, the, in their homes previously because Jesus got arrested those same men and women, they ran into the most public place imaginable, the city streets of downtown Jerusalem, and they started telling everyone they could, not what they read about, not what they heard about. They told people what it is that they had seen, that they saw a resurrected Savior. And that moment, that specific moment was the birth of both the church, but it was also the beginning of the story of the Bible because it was proof That Jesus was not just another wannabe Jewish messiah in a long list of wannabe Jewish messiahs, all of which were dead and all of which stayed dead. It proved that Jesus was the messiah. Because only the resurrection and the life can actually walk out of a tomb and be seen by hundreds and hundreds of people alive. Only the resurrection and the life can show up for breakfast on the beach with a bunch of other people After he's been dead and buried. And so, consequently, right, obviously, all the details, all the information, all the events, all the stories surrounding the life of Jesus, and especially the resurrection of Jesus, became very, very important to his followers. So, many people, like Luke told us last week, many people undertook to draw up an account, a document, of the things that have been fulfilled among these first century Jewish followers of Jesus. And we have, again, these, the fact that we have four different accounts of the life of Jesus is an incredibly, incredibly significant and also a very overlooked detail. In other words, right? we don't just have references to these four documents, we actually have the documents. And this is a big deal because most of ancient history, you should know this, in most of ancient history there are no documents, no copies, there are no originals of any documents anywhere. You would be shocked to discover how much ancient history we don't have. Most of ancient history, all we have is a reference, meaning we have a title and we have an author. Right? No copies, no originals, nothing anywhere. But the story of Jesus, right, who, come on, I mean, think about this for a minute, was a nobody. Right? I mean, think about this. Okay, he is a, he is a carpenter living in a city in the middle of a desert. Right, I mean, come on. This is like being a weatherman in Southern California, right? Dan, Caroline, if you're watching this morning, do you really need somebody to tell you it's going to be sunny and 75 today? Right, really? Do you really need a carpenter in the middle of a desert? Right, he was a nobody. But for some reason we actually have four different accounts of the life of Jesus. It's not because he was crucified, it's not because he was arrested, it's not even to record what it is that Jesus taught. The reason people sat down to document the life and the events surrounding Jesus is because he rose from the dead. And that's why we have the documents that we talked about together last week. These four documents right here. Now, you should also know, these documents were not written at the same time. Right? Each of these authors wrote them at a different period in history. These guys did not sit together in some room someplace and say, okay, hey, we need to get all of our facts straight. They each wrote their accounts separately, and immediately, immediately after these accounts, each of these accounts, immediately after each one of these accounts were written, by the early church, they were automatically and immediately assumed to be valuable, reliable, sacred and inspired. And also very quickly, very quickly the early church, the first followers of Jesus, they moved to adopt these specific documents, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John as scripture. Now, we talked about this last week. The reason that the early in the early church in the first few the first couple of decades of the early church when these documents were being written, during that time there were many many documents. And there were many, many people who were writing the documents surrounding Jesus. But in the early church, there were only four documents. Four documents that they, the early church, the eyewitnesses, the people who actually knew and saw Jesus before and after the resurrection, there were only four documents that the early church thought were so valuable that those four documents were worth people risking and even giving up their lives in order to protect for future Generations. So when the Apostle Paul, and this is where we pick up today, when the Apostle Paul, after the first century, as he begins to travel around the Mediterranean Rim, and he starts telling all of these Gentiles, right, meaning non Jewish people, when the Apostle Paul and the other apostles start talking to Gentiles about Jesus, the biggest struggle that people had in believing that Jesus was who he claimed to be was not the fact that Jesus claimed to be God. The biggest struggle was actually believing that Jesus was the only God. Now, this seems really easy, really simple, might even seem kind of ridiculous for us, but that's only because most of us were not actually raised in a polytheistic culture. But this was a huge, this was a massive Massive change because the entire ancient non-Jewish world believed in many, many gods. But suddenly, because of Jesus, they were confronted with the notion that there was, in fact, only one God. Right, see, and, and again, you got to understand this. In ancient times, um, people did not convert from one religion to another the way that we think about that today. People did not leave Christianity to become Buddhist, or leave Buddhism to become Hindu, or leave Hinduism to become um, Muslim. That, that's not at that's, that's not all how religion worked in the ancient world. In the ancient world, um, every region, right every Every place had um, their own gods. There were local gods everywhere, and people even had um, family gods, meaning that they they worship their ancestors, and so um, what ancient people would do. Let's say if they were, if you were moving from one city to another city, um, you would just grab all your gods and you threw them in a sack, and you took your your gods with you to wherever it is that you went. And if you happen to show up in a new region and there was a new god, you might decide that you wanted to incorporate that god into your worship, and that would just become a new god for you. But in ancient times. Um, people didn't, didn't move from one religion to another a, as we think about it. In fact, um, th- that idea wouldn't even come along for, for many, many, many centuries. And this is why, like we said last week, the Romans, um, they didn't care what god you worshipped as long as you paid homage to Caesar and as long as you did not in any way dishonor um, the Roman gods. Right? That's, that's, it didn't matter to anybody what god you worshipped. You could worship whatever god you wanted to. And so the idea that Jesus was the only God, um, this was a huge obstacle, absolutely huge obstacle for these Gentiles who now wanted to become followers of Jesus. But over time, and this is really important, over time, as more and more Gentiles became followers of Jesus, they also became enamored with the scriptures of Jesus. Now, before Jesus, this was not the case. Right before Jesus, there was always a small number of, of, of Gentiles who tried to follow Judaism as close as they could. But this was just a tiny, tiny, tiny percentage of people. The, the truth is, for the most part, most Gentiles had no interest in Judaism Because Judaism seemed really, really strange for them. Because, um, at least from a Gentile perspective, Jewish people ate very strange food. Um, Jewish people would never, ever, ever consider working on the Sabbath. Um, Jewish people would not allow your children to marry their children. And Jewish people would not allow you to come into their home. And they certainly, um, they certainly would not invite you. Uh, They would not come, they would not go into your home and you were not allowed to come into their home. And these attitudes, right, all these attitudes, they were very, very deeply ingrained in the mind of Jewish people. So much so that even the apostle Peter, right, for 15 years, some of you know this, for 15 years after the resurrection, even Peter himself refused to go inside a Gentile's home until the Holy Spirit actually spoke to Peter explicitly and told Peter that that idea, that behavior needed to go away. Right, So all through the Roman Empire, at, at this point in history, there's all these little pockets of Jewish people in all the major cities. In Rome, in Ephesus, in Galatia, in Corinth. And wherever these pockets of Jewish people were, they pretty much all kept to themselves. Um, and they, consequently, the Gentile people, really had no interest in Judaism whatsoever. Until, until they were introduced to the gospel... And very specifically, until they were introduced to the resurrection of Jesus. And when they discovered, when these Gentile people discovered that the Jewish scriptures, which the Jewish people referred to as the Law and the Prophets, right, not the Old Testament, that label wouldn't come for many, many decades afterwards. When these Gentiles, when these Gentile scholars and bishops discovered that the the Jewish scriptures, right, that they were in fact the prequel story to the Jesus story, they became fascinated in understanding more about these Jewish documents. They were not interested in Judaism, but they were very, very, very interested in finding Jesus in the Jewish scriptures. And when they did, to their amazement, what they discovered is that the Jewish people had always, from the very, very beginning, the Jewish people had always only believed in one God whose name was Yahweh. Now, again, we need to pause here for for just a moment um, to kind of catch up and give you a little background on this. So if you were with us last week, we talked about the fact that the Christians were persecuted in Rome in the first, second, and third centuries because the Christians did not worship the Roman gods and the Christians refused to declare that Caesar was Lord. But the Jewish people, they never declared that Caesar was Lord and the Jewish people never worshiped the Roman gods. And so a question that perhaps you've never thought to ask, but you really should ask, is why in the world did Rome give the Jewish people a pass, but then at the same time choose to persecute the Christians? And see, that question is actually a very, very important question. And the answer to that question is because Rome honored ancient things. The Romans knew that the the Jewish scriptures were older than the stories of Romulus and Remus. The Romans knew that the Jewish religion was older than the Greek pantheon of gods. And the Romans knew and they recognized that the Jewish scripture was actually older than any of the, the other Roman scriptures. And so even though they did not honor Yahweh as God, because they recognized that the Jewish scriptures were older than their religions or any of their sacred writings they allowed the Jewish people to keep their religion. And so these Gentile Christian scholars and bishops, um, as they began for the very first time to explore um, the, these Jewish scriptures, they were shocked to discover that the oldest religion that anybody knew anything about in the first century, that the oldest religion anyone had any, ever heard of from the very, very beginning recognized that there was, in fact, only One God. And the implications of this was absolutely staggering to these people. Because it meant that for centuries, for thousands of years, any culture, any group of people who believed in multiple gods, any group of people who worshiped their ancestors, it meant that all of them had gotten those ideas wrong. That from the very, very beginning, God made Himself known. And he did so by explaining this and saying to the very beginning of the people in the Jewish world and then the the Gentiles when they read these words for the first time they were floored by this because they opened up the very first pages of the first scroll of the first Jewish scriptures and this is what they saw. In the beginning God Not in the beginning, the gods, which is what all the other non-Jewish creation stories said. They discovered in the beginning, God. right? And the title of this first book of the Jewish scriptures is Genesis, which is a Greek word that in fact means origin. There we go. It means origin. And this book is the first book in both the Christian Bible, and it's also the very first book in the Jewish scriptures. Now, you may know this, but this book was written by Moses. Now, in the 19th and 20th centuries, a number of archeological discoveries were made that began to cast doubt onto the truth or the veracity of the Genesis account, and specifically where that account originated from. In fact, this is what most of you were taught in college or in graduate school, some of you perhaps even in high school. That in the 19th and 20th centuries, archaeologists made a number of different discoveries. And in those discoveries, they found Babylonian, Canaanite, Egyptian, and Sumerian um, creation myths. Right, And when they read these uh, first accounts, these creation myths, what they discovered is that these accounts sounded an awful lot like The Genesis account. In fact, so much so um, that it led to scholars believing and to thinking, at least initially, um, that that really the the Jewish scriptures, um, they just borrowed this idea. They they just borrowed this idea from all these other um, ancient creation stories. Um, In fact, maybe some of you in college, um, again, maybe even in high school, maybe some of you actually read um, some of those other creation accounts. And maybe you actually came to the same conclusion that those accounts sound an awful lot Like this, they sound an awful lot like Genesis. And so consequently, um, maybe you left thinking, or maybe you even had somebody tell you, right, why in the world would we take this seriously? Because all these Jewish people did is they just copied this from all of these other ancient creation stories. Now, listen, what you need to know is this, right? Because, like, who in the world cares about archaeology and ancient history other than nerds like me, right? So what you need to know, because you may not know this, is that that current that idea, right? That idea that somehow this was copied, that has pretty much been abandoned by scholars. In fact, all scholarship now indicates that not only does Genesis not borrow from other ancient creation stories, but that Genesis actually stands in stark contrast to all other ancient creation stories, because Genesis is a worldview onto itself. In fact, it is an extraordinarily Ahead of its time, world view. In fact, the modern scientific community would not even begin to catch up to the opening line from Genesis until 1927, when Georges Lamontier, who was a Belgian priest as well as a theoretical physicist, when he first came up with the theory that we now know as the Big Bang Theory. And maybe you know this, and maybe you don't know this. But from the time of Aristotle, which is about 400 BC, all the way until the 1960s, everybody believed, modern science believed, that all matter, as well as the universe, had always, always existed. That belief remained the dominant and the accepted scientific belief worldwide until 1964 with the discovery of the cosmic microwave background radiation. Because with the discovery of this in 1964, the idea and the belief that the universe had always existed was suddenly abandoned by science. Because this discovery meant that the universe expanded at a rate faster than the speed of light in a trillion trillionth of a second... And it went from a particle that was too small to be seen with the human eye to its literally astronomical size that it is today. In a trillion trillionth of a second. Or, as it says in Genesis, in the beginning, God. Do not miss this. Everything, everything, everything that has a beginning has a cause, not everything has a beginning and not everything has a cause, but everything, every single thing that has a beginning has a cause. And so the argument today in school, whether it's graduate school or college, whether it's middle school or high school, the argument today is actually around this question. Was it a purposeful cause? Was it an intentional cause? And is it a personal cause? Now, this is a big deal, right? This is a big deal. In fact, we miss how big of a deal this actually is. And the reason we miss this is because what Moses is doing in the opening line of Genesis is he's building a case. And the reason we miss, the reason why this is lost on us is because the case that Moses is building is, in fact, assumed by us, right? The reason we miss how significant this is, is because Moses succeeded in making his case. But Moses is writing this section of scripture. He's writing the book of Genesis to these incredibly, incredibly ancient people who know nothing but slavery to the Egyptians, and they know nothing other than the, than the Egyptian God, gods. And so Moses is making the case that in the beginning, there's on, there was on, from the beginning, there's only ever been one God, Yahweh. Not the gods. No, there was just one God. And this one God, he made the heaven and the earth. And so Moses says this, in the beginning, God created, right? Not Egypt's Amon-Re, not Babylon's Marduk, right? In fact, in the Babylonian, you might not know this, this is a free one. The Babylonian creation story, which is really interesting if you want to read it sometime. In the Babylonian creation story, the way that the universe as well as all matter comes into existence, um, the, the Babylonian god Marduk, He rides into this massive battle, straddling, this is so cool, straddling two war horses, right, named Slaughterer and Merciless. How amazing is that? And he enters this battle, and in the battle he defeats this goddess named Tiamut by shooting an arrow through her, and then he splits her body in half, and with the upper half of her body he creates the heavens, and with the lower half of her body he creates the earth. But in Genesis But in Genesis we find something extraordinarily extraordinarily different. No borrowing. No parallel anywhere. Only in Genesis do we find this. In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis is nothing like any of the other ancient creation myths. It's nothing like the Babylonian creation myths. It's nothing like the Egyptian creation myths. It's nothing like the, or the Samaritan creation myths. It is nothing like any of those stories, where the gods are at odds with each other, where they actually go to war with one another, where the gods somehow create other gods out of body parts or dead bodies. Genesis reads nothing like any of those. And when compared to those, this is so important, when compared to those, Genesis alone creates an amazingly ahead of its time worldview. A worldview which is unto itself. It is not like any other creation story anywhere. Which brings us to the next amazingly ahead of its time statement found in the book of Genesis. Now, the Babylonian creation myth, which we were talking about just a moment ago, um, you might be familiar with this. Some of you read this in college. um, AP high school students, you may have read this in English. It's called the Enuma Elish, right? The Enuma Elish, it means when on high, right? And so in this creation story, after Marduk becomes the king of all the gods, that's when Marduk creates human beings. And this is what he says. This is a quote from the Enuma Elish. Marduk speaking, I will establish a savage. Man shall be his name. Savage man I will create. He will be charged with the service of the gods, that they, the gods, that they might be at ease. In all other creation stories, humanity is nothing more than an afterthought whose purpose is to serve the lazy gods. And because of the way ancient people read and believed and accepted these ancient mythologies, the injustices and the violence that they perpetrated on each other was simply the result of the violence and the injustice they saw being perpetrated by their gods. And so they were simply repeating the behavior of the very gods that they worshipped. But Genesis is completely different. Right? No parallels anywhere. Nothing even comes close. Genesis tells us. The religion that was older than any other religion in the first century tells us. Genesis says what no other creation myth would ever dare to say. A concept that humanity continues to wrestle with and to struggle with even to this very day. That God said, let us make humanity in our image. In the Jewish scriptures, do not miss this. Humanity is the pinnacle of creation. It is not the afterthought of creation. It is the pinnacle of creation. Which meant that every single man, every single woman, every single child that you would ever become face to face with. That you would ever see all of them have dignity and value defined by God from the very, very beginning. This was and in many parts of our world today remains unheard of and even the mythologies this is so staggering even the mythologies that came into existence after this was written none of them none of them incorporate or borrow this idea this idea stands alone in the book of Genesis Genesis creates a worldview onto itself but what comes next is even more unthinkable In fact, what comes next is the reason why archaeologists and scholars ended up coming to the conclusion that Genesis does not borrow from any other creation myth. That Instead, it is a worldview and an account unto itself. In fact, what we're going to see next would have been unimaginable 500 years after it was written. It would have been unimaginable 1,000 years, 2,000 years after it was written. Genesis says this. God said... Let us make humanity in our image, in our likeness, so that humanity may rule over, not worship, so that humanity may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over the livestock and all the other wild animals. Only in Genesis do we find that humanity is called to rule over everything else in the planet, in other words, Humanity is called to be the stewards of our planet. This is an amazingly ahead of its time worldview. From the very beginning, God created a unique and incredible worldview way, way, way ahead of its day. Genesis continues and says this So God created humanity in His own image. In the image of God, He created them, male. And female, he created them. Now, everybody, eyes up here for a minute. You've heard me say this before, for those of you who have been around for a while. I think every woman should be a follower of Jesus. Jesus was literally the first person in history to ascribe dignity and value intrinsically to women. He was the very first person to do this. Jesus was the very first individual in history to elevate the status of women. In fact, this is why so many women actually followed Jesus. We're going to talk more about that next week. Ladies, the God of the Jews, who became the God of the Christians, gave you dignity and worth that the world is still trying to catch up with today. Do not, do not give that up. Only recently, only recently has civilization around the world begun to even come to grips in any meaningful way with what God says in the very beginning. That every single man, every single woman, every single child that you will ever be eyeball to eyeball with was made in the image of their heavenly father. So be very, very careful and treat them. Doesn't matter if you know them. Treat them with the utmost care and respect. But, according to the Enuma Elish, you were created to serve... The lazy gods. In fact, you were born a slave to the lazy gods. According to the Enuma Elish, you have no free will. There is no redeemer. You have no intrinsic value. And there is no afterlife. According to the new atheists, people like Dawkins and Harris and Dennett and Hitchens, you are actually born a slave to your DNA. You have no free will. There is no redeemer, and there also is no afterlife. But according to Genesis, from the very beginning, you were created by your heavenly father, a heavenly father who loves you, a heavenly father who has saved you, a heavenly father who redeems you, and a heavenly father who will never, ever, ever, ever give up on you all of this from the very beginning a god who gives to us freedom freedom to choose and then who honors our choices but then it's in that moment that we realize that only yahweh does the most unthinkable thing imaginable because only Yahweh actually goes to work, think about this, to reverse the consequences of humanity's decision to choose against him. Only Yahweh. Only Genesis, only Genesis provides us with the worldview and the framework that actually provides the answers to life's most important questions, the why questions. The why is there something here rather than nothing question. And more personal and more important than that, the why are you here question. And the why do you matter question. Only Genesis tells us that you are here with a purpose on purpose. That you are not the result of some cosmic conflict between the gods. That you were not somehow created um, by the universe That you were created because your heavenly father actually wanted image bearers. Image bearers who could relate and know one another. And image bearers that could actually know and relate to him personally. And then this is the best part. When the time was right, and God actually had everything the way that he wanted it to be, Yahweh joined us. The God of the Jews, who became the God of the Gentiles, became flesh and lived among us. Which naturally only fueled the Gentile scholars and bishops' desire to learn more and to understand more about the Jewish scriptures. And so no surprise, very quickly, within about 50 years of Constantine, the, the Jewish scholars, the Gentile scholars and bishops, they all moved to incorporate the Jewish scriptures as a part of the Christian Bible. Now, before we wrap it up together today, uh, two more things I want to leave you with. Um, because we've kind of just hit the high points, right, over the last couple of weeks I'm talking about how we got the Bible. Two resources I want to make you aware of. Um, The first seven days that divide the world. The beginning according to Genesis and science. So this gentleman right here, John C. Lennox, uh, is a Oxford mathematician. He was a mathematician at Oxford for decades. Um, Genesis, if Genesis has ever been a stumbling block for you personally, I'm trying to understand how science and faith actually come together and work together. How they're actually two sides of the same coin. I want to recommend this book to you. And if you want to know more of all the little nitty-gritty details about each of the books um, that we have in our Bible and about the two halves of the Bible and how each of those individual books got to be inside of it, I highly, highly recommend From God to Us, Norman Geisler, William Nix, a fabulous book that will answer all those questions and it will help you to know even better how it is that we got our Bible. Let me pray for you today. Heavenly Father, every single one of us, uh, when we hear the word Bible, um, we have an emotional response. Father, some of us can remember the first time we opened the pages. Some of us can remember reading it nonstop and not being able to put it down. Fathers of others of us remember looking and reading the text and the stories and just wondering. Wondering if these promises could be true for me because of my past? Because of my present or because of what had happened to me in in the past. Father, still others of us have read the pages. And we want it to be true. But we just don't know if it is true. As a Holy Spirit in this moment right now, I ask for you to do two things, Holy Spirit, that only you can do. Only you can do this. Holy Spirit, speak to our hearts. Tell us the truth about who Jesus is and the truth about who we are. That we are so valuable to him that he would give up his life just to know us. Just to know us. And for those of us who struggle with the ideas and the things that we read in the pages of this book, Holy Spirit, the truth is you already know where we struggle because you know our hearts. But would you give us the courage just to be honest with you? To to say those things, Heavenly Father, to you right now? Because you can take it. You understand it. And most of all, Father, because you want to love us in spite of it. And so, Father, I pray that you would hear each of us as we speak to you and as we confess our sin to you right now. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus was crucified. Jesus died, and Jesus was buried. And then three days later, he walked out of that tomb. And if our Savior and our Lord has walked out of that tomb, then one day, so will I. And so will you. And so the good news of the gospel is that your sin, it has truly been forgiven. In Jesus' name.